We're reading Luke chapter 10, 21 through 24. In the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son, who the Son is except the Father, or who for the, who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, once again, your word. And Lord, our declaration together as the body of Christ this morning is that we boast only in you. You are our hope. You are our our treasure, Lord, and so we make our boast wholly and entirely in you this morning. God, we have nothing to bring to you to barter for our salvation. We have no merit. We have no good works that would qualify us for so great love that has been lavished on so many of us. And Lord, I pray that for those of us who have not yet experienced your love, Lord, that you would clearly reveal yourself through your word this morning, through the proclamation of it, Lord, through the declaration of it, so that all of your sheep, all of your children would be gathered in, Lord God, for that great and glorious day where we stand before your throne as you reign on this earth for all eternity, Lord God. And so we thank you now, and we, we turn to you now and ask you to enable our ears to hear, enable my mouth to preach, Lord God. God, I pray that you would strain every last vestige of me out of this message, Lord God, and let your word go forth with the intent that you have, Lord God, and the clarity that you have built into it. I thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. We... um are in a series, some of you might have been here uh, the last couple of weeks and know this, but we're in a series called The Five Solas. And these five solas, you, you may not be familiar with that term, but it's five statements of fundamental truth that guard, that, that kind of serve as a, as a, a, a guard around all uh, Christian theology. And these five solas framed the thinking of the Protestant reformers back in the 16th century. Um, but though these things became battle cries for uh, the, the, the church during that time, even though you know, they, 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 they were clearly rallied around and, sh- and, and proclaimed during that time, I want you to know they did not originate in the 16th century. Well, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that these five fundamental truths are clearly the, uh, the, uh, the, the message of Scripture throughout the Old and New Testament. That these are the, this is what the, the Scripture teaches throughout the, the books. And so, this word sola, S-O-L-A, is Latin for alone. And so the five solas, these five fundamental truths, are Scripture alone, Christ alone, 
grace alone, faith alone, and to the glory of God alone. And every, I said this last week, every false doctrine that has infiltrated the church throughout two millennia springs from abandoning one or more of these truths. And this is true of the battles over things like the, the humanity and the divinity of Christ and over the nature of the Trinity that raged in the first 500 years of church's history. Um, it's also true of the, the heresies that, that literally made the Protestant Reformation necessary. But what I want you to hear this morning, because you don't live in the first 500 years of the church, right? You don't live in the 16th century during the Protestant Reformation. You don't live during any of those times. So what I want you to hear is that this thing I'm saying about, and if I didn't make this clear last week, that, that, that this abandonment of the five solas is what leads to heresy, it's also true of false teachers um, that fill the airwaves today or that, that put out podcasts today. Um, th- this, is, this is still true. Let me, let me illustrate it like this. The, the prosperity message you hear so much about, that is a departure from grace alone. Yes. Okay. But all emphasis, the gospel that places way too much emphasis on time and knowledge is a rejection of the glory of God alone. False religions, like Mormonism, and all the things that they have that they do not appear either Christ alone or they alone. The, the, the origin of all heresy comes from abandoning these five truths. And all of these were the truth could have been avoided. They could have been avoided if their founders and their, their modern day heroes had grown up the Bible embracing the authority of love. Scripture alone. Amen? So they must have been for the heart of everything we embrace as believers. In the deception that the ungodly man tried to impose on Jesus' church in the future are going to be a result of the same types of abandonment of these five soul-anchoring truths. So today we're going to consider a third one. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, Paul Landers talked to us about sola scriptura, scripture alone. Last week I talked uh, about Christ, uh, solus Christus, Christ alone. And today we're going to talk about sola gratia, grace alone. Paul reminded the Ephesian church, and this describes all of us, that there was a time when they were completely cut off from salvation. Completely. This way he says. He says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and you were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, you might have never thought growing up as a good red-blooded American church-going Christian that that statement ever applied to you. But what I want you to hear, what I want you to know, what I want you to embrace this morning is that every single one of us had a time in our life, no matter where you are right now, when you were alienated from God, when you had no hope in his covenant, when you you were completely without God in this world. The, 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 The people he's describing in this Ephesian church and those who have lived in that place, which, as I said, we all have. We're like people who had fallen overboard on a great ship out in the middle of the ocean. And they were miles from land, miles from any other ship, any other vessel that could hear their cries from help. 
That's what it means to be alienated from God. You are completely, 100%, separated, alone, in a, incapable of rescue. But, God, but, but Paul in this passage, just a, a few verses connected to the one I just read you, Paul in this passage makes it clear that grace, grace is the reality that makes salvation possible for, for people who are believers. So that's what does it. It's not you, it's not... You might have gotten all the gold stars in Sunday school for bringing your Bible and memorizing Scripture. That is not enough. That is not enough to save your wretched soul. Only grace. Only grace can do it. It's the life preserver. When we fall off that ship in the middle of the ocean, it is the life preserver that brings us back to safety. This is how uh, Paul clarifies it. This is his, his wonderful definition of how that works. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one, so that no one can boast. Can I tell you that if you are a believer today, and I hope this describes many of you, you have absolutely zero bragging rights. You have nothing. You got nothing. It's like me, you know, winning the lottery and, and bragging about how my hard work uh, had paid off. My hard work was slapping down a dollar bill at the local 7-Eleven. There was no, nothing to it. I got nothing to brag about. You may have heard uh, over the years, especially those of you that were raised in church, may have heard grace defined as unmerited favor. And this is a great definition. It points out to the freely granted aspect of grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve and escaping what you do deserve. Amen? There are two sides of grace. Receiving an undeserved gift and escaping a well-deserved punishment. But what, I want to go a little bit deeper, peel back the layers just a little bit, and talk about this morning, what makes grace, grace. John Newton wrote that incredible song we sang this morning, after a life of, of depravity and slave trading and all kinds of horrible things. He wrote that song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound Saved a Wretch Like Me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. What would make him write those kind of words. It wasn't, it wasn't just a natural uh, affinity for poetry. It was a, it was a life experience. It was a, it was a series of realizations that made him able to pen those words. See, grace, when I was growing up, my, my parents owned a jewelry store and my, my dad would sometimes buy loose diamonds. And I remember how he would take those diamonds and he had a, a, a lamp under his, uh, 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 over his desk rather, and he would he'd take those diamonds and he would just hold them up into the light and just spin them around and examine them very closely. And see, grace is like a multifaceted, flawless diamond. If we turn grace in the light of Scripture, then all we're going to see is dazzling brilliance. It's beautiful to examine. J.I. Packer commented, 
in his book, Knowing God, that Christians should feel in the depths of their hearts four great component truths in order to understand grace. These four component truths are the sinfulness of sin, the judgment of God, the inability of humanity, and God's sovereign freedom. So let's begin by examining for just a few moments the sinfulness of sin. That may sound like a curious uh, statement to you. Sin is sin, but, but what does it mean to say the sinfulness of sin? See, understanding grace, you will never understand grace if you uh, do not have a serious view of sin. If you're not aware of just how bad sin is, and across the board, and what the effects of sin are, you will never understand grace, even on the most rudimentary level. I, I knew a teenager once who was always pushing the boundaries of acceptable behavior. Anybody ever known a teenager like that? I mean, there was just if society built a, bound, a boundary, they were going to leap over it. How many of you were that teenager? Don't raise your hand. But this underage boy was drinking a lot. And he wrecked a couple of cars in an impaired state. But, but curiously, he never really got to face a lot of the natural consequences of that kind of behavior. His, his father would plead with judge after judge to go easy on him, begging him for just... One more chance. And can you imagine what the impact on that young man's life of that intervention by his father was? Can you imagine? I'll tell you what it was. This boy continued to, to live his life with absolutely no regard whatsoever for either the danger or the foolishness of his actions. Now here's the point. It's easy to wag our finger at that young man. But that describes every one of us. Every single one of us. We just, we just go on in foolish and dangerous behavior and just beg the, the judge of the universe for just one more chance. Just, just save us from ourselves. Just give us one more chance. And sadly, some of us still live right there. But what I need you to hear this morning, uh, no matter how much the, the idea of raising your self-esteem has in, infiltrated the church, I want you to know this. Your sins, my sins, aren't just oopsies. They're not mistakes. Our sins, the Bible is crystal clear on this point, are calculated, premeditated acts of rebellion against the order of the law of the God of the universe. Flip Wilson. How many of you are old enough to remember Flip Wilson? Five of you. <laughs> Flip Wilson was a comedian in the 60s and 70s, and he had a bit that he would do. Anybody remember what he said? The devil made me do it. That was Flip's big, big line. The devil made me do it. But guess what, Flip? That ain't true. No matter how wicked you are, you're not, you're not a puppet of the devil. You are a free moral agent acting on your own perverse desires. Can I get a hearty amen from the church this morning? See, 
one of the most critical elements of theology you need to grasp is this. You are not a sinner because you sin. Some of you just got your mind blown. Isn't that what makes you a sinner? No, not at all. You are not a sinner because you're sin. You sin because you are a sinner. It is intrinsic to your nature. It is deeply uh, intertwined with everything you are. You are a sinner and therefore you sin. You live out of your nature. Paul borrows from several psalms. He kind of makes this composite uh, overview of several psalms. And he states all of our problem clearly in Romans 3. He says these familiar words, No one is or none is righteous, no Not one. No one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. So here's what I want to say. I hope you all still love me after this. But i got to tell you... Do not come to me when this message is done because we revere, we revere Scripture. We revere solo Scripture, Scripture alone. Don't come and tell me that you are basically a good person. Because the Bible says there's none right. Not even one. So you may think, well, come on. Okay, sure. I'm not perfect, but I'm better than this woman. I'm better than that man. But you better hope and pray that that's how God considers you when he looks at your sin. But I'm telling you scripturally, it's not. Because God does not measure your sin by that woman or this man. He measures your sin by this book. And if that's the case, we're all in deep, deep trouble. Because if I were to turn in this book to the the book of James, I would read these words... It would say, anyone who has, has failed in one point of this law has failed in it all. We're in trouble if we're judged by this book. Hearty amen? amen? So don't tell me that you're a good person. You know what else? I don't want you to tell me. I don't want you to tell me that you understand. You've got a grasp on how badly you need Christ. Because when you say that, Scripture is going to point its finger right in your face and say, there is no one who understands. Well, come on. I'm a Christian. I'm an American. I'm a Republican. I'm a whatever. I know all about Jesus. So I'm going to tell you, this is what the Scripture says. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly. That word means foolishness to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Oh, come on, Mark. I've come to church for years and I try to do the right thing. Maybe. See, you've missed the point. Paul goes on. No one seeks after God. That means your best actions are corrupted by lousy motives. Did y'all hear what I said? Your best actions are corrupted by lousy motives. And and don't feel too judged right now because guess who had to write this down while they were looking in the mirror? 
My, my, my actions are just as corrupt as yours by my, my impure motive. See, you're not seeking after God. And God is not impressed, not even a tiny little itsy bitsy bit by your morality. Not a bit. If, if I can be very gross, very graphic here, the Bible in the book of Isaiah calls all of your good deeds a menstrual cloth. Yep, I said it. Did we get that recorded, by the way? That's what it says. Yeah, well, I go to church all the time. Well, guess what? The same book of Isaiah. The Bible says all of your church going to him is like trampling on his courts. Romans says, all this considered that we've all turned aside, we've become worthless. And that's hard to hear, isn't it? Become worthless. We do nothing good. We don't even fear God. God is holy. God is our judge. And we don't even fear him. Kind of thumb our nose at him. And so you may be thinking, uh, the, uh, the program said message on grace today. You're hammering with a pretty heavy sledge there, Mark. Pretty heavy for a message on grace. But will you promise to just stay with me? Buckle your seatbelt. It's like the roller coasters at Six Flags. Once that lap bar goes down, you gotta just endure the ride, okay? You're on the roller coaster. Just ride with me for a little bit. A parable in Luke 18. He told them this parable. Jesus told them this, par- this parable to those, but to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men, Jesus says, went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, religious professional, top of his class, the pillar of society. The other, a wretched despised tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, isolated from all the sin and yuckiness around him, he prayed this way, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, because I fast twice a week. I give tithes off of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, away from the Pharisee, not even fit to be in the same company with such a spiritual man, will not raise his eyes to heaven and beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner. Jesus tells a story and then he makes this observation. I tell you, this man, the guy standing over here, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What the scriptures see if you want grace, and I hope you all do. But if you want grace, you got to start by recognizing your absolute need for it. You've been wandering in the Sahara for days, and it is water. That's the level of desperation you should have for grace. You have. No bootstraps to pull yourself up by. 
You have absolutely zero bargaining chips with God. He doesn't trade in your kind of currency. See, grace is never bestowed on the good guy wearing the white hat who is sure he deserves it. It's only lavished on bad guys with black hats who are driven to humility as they beg for the mercy of God that they know they could never earn. And it's that kind of people, black-hatted bad guys, that go home justified. Let me ask you a question. Walking through this sinful world, I don't care if you're a Christian or you're not, walking through this sinful world, how long has it been since you were aware, not of their darkness, not of their sin, but of the deep darkness that desires to master you. And only you. Not concerned for a nanosecond about the darkness in your wife, the darkness in your husband, the darkness in your children, the darkness in your co-workers, the darkness in your church, but the darkness in you. How? When was the last time that you gave it a second thought? And yet, because of the scent the aroma of grace, you bowed your head, beat your breast and said, have mercy and grace on me. I am a sinner. That's how you go home justified. That's how you go home justified. Jesus doesn't have a punch card, ten good deeds and one free trip to heaven. That's how you go home justified. See, grace is also, interestingly enough, seen in the judgment of God. What? When most of us speak of the judgment of God, what we have in mind is this outpouring of His wrath, maybe in the apocalyptic last days. We don't think about His grace. But when you discover your sinfulness, as we just described it, not your sinful acts, but the core of your being, when you discover your sinfulness, you become aware that no holy God could ever excuse or ignore sin at any level. See, if He did, if God just kind of blew past our sin, it would make Him, necessarily, it would make Him less than holy. It, It would even make Him unholy to do so. And I can assure you this morning, if anything in this book is true, that one, that unholy is the one thing that God can never be. And so His innate perfection demands perfect holiness. Perfect holiness. Not pretty good holiness. Perfect holiness. And so when a holy God sees human sin, He's dry, driven, He's absolutely driven by perfect justice. Perfect holiness leads to perfect justice. And and He has to judge every last bit of it in a deluge of His terrible wrath. But see, here's the good news. God is not only perfectly holy. He is. But He's not only perfectly holy. He's not only perfectly just. He's also perfectly loving. His love, the Bible says, His love and kindness, His mercy, the Bible says, endures forever. And so He looks on this, even with, without compromising His holiness, without compromising His justice, He looks at us and takes compassion on His failing creatures. Well, how does this not 
collide with itself. God is perfectly just, God is perfectly loving. How does it not collide with itself? Those two realities. Here's how Romans puts it. Paul is summing up an argument about the inherent righteousness of Jews and the inherent righteousness of Gentiles. And this is his conclusion. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet, most of us have memorized that part, but look at this. And, and all of those who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, if we're justified at all, we're justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that, this is really key phrase here, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now let me kind of unpack that for you. The Bible says that Jesus was put forward by God as a propitiation. Now we don't use that word. Raise your hand if you use that word once this week in, in casual conversation. Okay, I didn't think so. A propitiation is a sacrifice that's made to satisfy or to appease someone. If you leave church today and I preach too long and you got to get lunch and you go tearing out of here and flying 75 miles an hour down Milwaukee, you might get an impromptu visit from one of Lubbock's finest. And they're going to say, hey, you know, the, the speed limit here is 50. You were gone 25 miles and over. I'm going to give you a free gift. I'm going to give you a piece of paper that says you owe the state a couple hundred bucks. And you'll go stand before the court and you will make propitiation for your crime. You will satisfy the city of Lubbock, the county of Lubbock, the, the state of Texas with a doc, with a, with a payment uh, to relieve the, the, the to, to enact justice so that they will be appeased at your crime. Does everybody understand? How many of you know that our, our sin needed a propitiation more than a uh, traffic ticket? It's a little bit bigger than that. And so, God's, if, if there was going to be someone to appease, any, if there's going to be a sacrifice that would appease or satisfy God's wrath, it would have, that sacrifice would have to be perfect. So here's the bad news. Right off the bat, every single one of us are disqualified. Every one of us. We're doomed. So here's what had to happen. Since there's, there, there was only, the, the only perfection in the universe resides in God, so, so the Son, eternally existing with God, the Son had to become a man. Because he wasn't just existing with God, he was God, First John tells, or, or John chapter 1 tells us. He, he had to become man and live his life in perfect obedience because if he wasn't a man, he couldn't have paid our debt because it was a man that had to pay. And he had to live in perfect obedience because if he had a single flaw, he would only have been paying for his own debt. But two things were true. He was human and he was perfect. And, and in, that, in that situation, he became able to pick up the tab for all of mankind's nonstop wickedness. And this allowed God, this is what's so beautiful about what I just described to you. This allowed God, this is what Paul's saying, to remain holy. His holiness was never compromised. His justice was never compromised. And, and, and he could still remain demanding satisfaction for the many ways that you and I have vandalized his holiness. 
And he has never, ever lowered his standard. The soul that sins, Ezekiel says, shall die. But see, by paying the price himself through Jesus, he's not only just, the propitiation was made, the satisfaction was made, he's not only just, but he's also the agent of our justification. You and I, guys, who were once enemies of God, alienated from God, apart from the life of God, now we can be justified because he was just and the justifier. God, who is unspeakably holy and just, He will, don't ever forget this, God never winks at your sin. He will judge all sin. There are only two options that exist for you. God will judge all sin. He's the holy judge of the universe. And He will judge it either, first of all, by subjecting the sinner to eternal punishment, eternal torment in hell. Or, this is the better option. If I'm picking for you, this is what I'm picking. This is the better option. Or, he will allow the judgment that you so richly deserve to be applied to Jesus Christ on the cross if you place your faith in him. You and I don't deserve grace. That's what makes it grace. Paul says grace is a gift. And if I can remind you of your own habits, you only give gifts to those whom you love. God has given us His grace because He loves us so much. The cross is the most vivid picture of the wrath of God against sin you will ever see. If you ever doubt how much God hates sin, look at what it did to Him there. God Himself. Jesus was God. God died for the sins of the world. A brutal, horrible death. But without the cross, if you didn't have that picture, you could never have a hope of truly understanding grace. Because that is where grace is most vividly displayed. We've got two more steps we've got to go through. And this is, this is the, the third one that may sound wrong to apply this to grace. But it, we also have to consider, and I've, I've alluded to it all morning long already, the inability of humanity to understand grace. Even if we understand the problem that is posed by our own sinfulness, or even if we appreciate what God has done on the cross through Jesus Christ, here's the bad news, really bad news. This is the worst news you're going to hear this morning. Even if you understand all that, you are helpless to fix what is at the root of your problem. You're helpless. Hands are tied, feet are shackled, you got no help whatsoever. And the root of our problem is our corruption, our pollution, our thoughts, our desires, our natures. Total depravity is what uh, theologians have called this, this concept I'm talking to you about. And it teaches that we are completely corrupt. Now, sometimes that throws people for a loop, and, and when, especially when you consider people who are morally worse than you. So, total depravity doesn't mean that we're all equally evil in our actions. Again, a little gross, but that doesn't mean that everybody is a, a cannibal or a potential cannibal or a child molester or a murderer or anything like that. It doesn't mean that everybody is that. What it means is that we're all deeply stained with sin. And we have no remedy in ourselves. You cannot pull yourself out of this fire. We, we have no remedy in ourselves. We have no spiritual dis- detergent to wash that stain away. We can't 
moralize or vow our way out of our sin predicament. Let me kind of explain this. We're totally unable to help ourselves because our minds and our hearts are corrupted. Jeremiah 17 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Paul said to Titus in the New Testament, he said, To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Paul said to the Ephesians that the minds of unbelievers were futile. That means without any uh, effect. They're futile and their understanding is darkness is darkened. In our sinfulness, we can't even think the right kinds of thoughts or have completely pure motives, as I indicated earlier. But it's not just our, our, our heart, our thoughts. The, the, the Bible also says that your will, as an unbeliever, is enslaved. You're literally shackled. You're enslaved. Your will is. Uh, Jesus said, it says, Jesus answered them in John 8, Truly I say to you, that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. People like to talk about free will. You know, and, and place a lot of value on free will. And what they mean by that is that they mean that they have the right to choose morally. Left or right, white or black. They have the, they have the, the, the uh, right to choose morally. But my question to you is... If you are a slave, in the literal sense, if you're a slave, you're enslaved somewhere in the world today, and you decide that the, the, the cottage that you are given to live in, the shack that you're, you are given to live in is not sufficient for you, so you're going to go move to an uptown apartment in the sky. Do you have that option as a slave? Do you? So what makes you think, if you're a slave to sin, what makes you think that you have any ability or right to decide not to be? That's the definition of slavery. The definition of slavery. Slavery takes all your options away. Can a slave to sin freely choose anything besides sin? And Jesus' reference here isn't an outlier in the Bible. The Bible talks about how we're slaves to sin and the flesh. In John, Romans, Galatians, 2 Timothy, Titus, 2 Peter, we are captives. And, and, and we're all captives and prisoners to our sinful desire. That's not all. Not just our hearts and our wills that are enslaved. The Bible says that our affections and our desires are perverted. John 3, Jesus himself from his own mouth, he said, This is the judgment. This is why the world's in deep trouble. Because light has come into the world through God's law, through the Word, through the, through the uh, uh, teaching, and mostly through the sun, through the arrival of the sun. Light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light. Given a choice between Jesus and darkness, guess what we chose? Darkness. Every time. Rather than the light. They chose darkness rather than light for this simple reason because their works our works were evil and let me you may think oh, come on man God, I, I can choose good things I'm, I'm sure you can on some level but I want to ask you this when you're doing something that you know is morally wrong or even destructive to your bodies or souls how often do we persist anyway in that thing don't raise your hands. Has anybody here ever tried to stop smoking, stop drinking, stop looking at porn, stop over, overspending? 
I'm telling you, we can know it's destructive. We can know that, it, that it's, it's, it's destructive to our souls, and yet we persist. Why? Because we innately choose darkness over light. You know the light. You see the light, and yet you choose the darkness. That's who we are. It's, it's intertwined in us. Worse. How often do we engage in things that are killing us and we either make excuses for it? You have a terrible explosive temper and you go, well, I have red hair. I'm, I'm of Irish or Hispanic descent. That's just how we are. Or, if we know it's wrong and we don't get caught, we don't get found out, we're able to log off our computer, erase our history, and no one knows any better. If we're able to do that, then we have the sense, oh, I got away with something. So we're engaging in things that are killing us and we make excuses for it. We, we feel like we get away with something. But, but my point is this, that none of us, by default, without an, a, 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 a complementary action by the Holy Spirit, none of us chooses what is best. And so Jesus, looking at this tendency in us, said this, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And you might say, well, hold on just a second, I'll change myself because the Bible says good people bring good treasure out. Wait! It also says evil people produce evil out. And we have this other scripture in Romans 3 that says there is none righteous, no, not one. So which category do you naturally fall into? Our only hope, our only hope is grace. And grace alone, sola gratia. But do you see the problem? The problem is this. Our, our sinfulness is deeper than we can imagine. And we are right now, because of that, under the sentence of divine judgment of God. And now I'm adding this little thing on top that we're incapable of helping ourselves in our sin trouble. What on earth is to be done with us? And that question brings me to the last facet as we spin this diamond in the light of Scripture, this last facet of God's amazing grace, the one that reveals the beauty even in the light of the reality of our sinfulness, the, the, the reality that we have all earned God's judgment on our heads and, and that we're all hopelessly incapable, and it is this, the sovereign freedom of God. That is where everything starts to come into clear focus for us. It's, it's what our text this morning was all about. Let me set it up for you. Luke 10, where we read this morning, Kami read for us. 72 of Jesus' followers are sent out by Him to the surrounding villages to proclaim the kingdom of God. And they return and they're telling Jesus of God's power working through them. Oh, you wouldn't have believed it, Jesus. You, you, you could have seen, I wish you could have seen what had happened. 
The sick were healed, demons were cast out, and they rejoice and they tell Jesus account after account of the results of their ministry. And Jesus says this, that would have been so encouraging. He says, hey guys, while you were doing the work, I saw Satan fall like lightning. I saw his power in the region broken. And he, he in that moment, he gives them authority over, this is the way the Bible says it, over serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And everyone's riding pretty high. And Jesus says this. This is a really important turn in this account. Jesus says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. That the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So what is he doing there? He's drawing their attention to his word. I have written your names in heaven. By the freedom of my sovereign will, I have written your names in heaven. And he's drawing his attention to his work, not to their work, as if Jesus the Christ needed anything from them. And he's not done in this, in this passage declaring his own sovereignty, his own overarching rule over everything. And this is where Kami picked this up in the story. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and he said... Excuse me. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. His response to their testimony was joy. His response to their testimony was thankfulness. But for what? What was he joyful and thankful about? It was this, that the smartest, best educated and spiritual people have been left in the dark. And that God has revealed His power and His authority to little children. Now, which category do you want to be in? Spiritual big shot or little children? Jesus said this. He said, because this, this isn't indicating that His followers were kids. It wasn't, the disciples weren't a bunch of eight-year-olds. But what He's saying is that they had simple, childlike faith. Luke will say later in his, in his gospel, he'll say, truly, Jesus, putting these words to, from Jesus, he says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So now he's saying, the Father is pleased to reveal his power to little children and just kind of pass over the spiritual big shots. Those who should have known what God was doing completely missed it. And not because they didn't think or study hard enough or diligently enough, but because it was God's gracious will. That's what Jesus says. It was God's gracious will to reveal himself to little children instead. He goes on, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. So he's saying, I am equal to God. I have the authority over everything that God has authority over. And no one knows the Son... Who the Son is, rather. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So Jesus is saying here that no one has first-hand knowledge of who the Father or the Son truly are. You're not going to just figure it out, is what He's saying. You're not that smart. I'm not that smart. None of us are. You're not just going to figure it out. It's a heavenly mystery. There's, there's mystery surrounding it. It reminded me of back at Mount Sinai when the people were gathered and Moses was called up to the mountain and 
clouds and smoke and thunder and lightning were all around the mountain. It was shaking and, and everyone could sense that God was there. They knew the reality of God, but they couldn't see Him. Then Moses goes up on the mountain and he says, and he says, I want to see your glory. And, and, and God says, I'm going to pass by you, but I'm going to cover your, your face with my hand because no one can see my face and live. And Jesus is affirming this. He says, no one's seen the Father. No one knows who the Father is except the Son. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. And, and he says, he says but, but if you want to know the Father, I can reveal him to you. So with the coming of the Son, something changes. There are now some to whom the Son is pleased to reveal the Father. Wow. Wow. And you can go to seminary for 12 years and become a doctor of theology, and that will not qualify you to see the Father. And you can... Spend 24 hours speaking in tongues and casting out devils and that will not qualify you to see the Father. The only thing that's going to qualify you to see the Father is if the Son chooses to reveal Him to you. Mm. It is by His sovereign will, Jesus' sovereign will, that any of this happens. John 6, another verse, a few, uh, or a little bit later in the Bible, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Unless the Father gives the green light, no one can just barge in and jump over the fence and, and go, go meet Jesus. I've said it many times. I've said that you guys, especially if you've been in the church for several years, you've heard me say this probably a thousand times. No one ever finds Jesus. You could take your flashlight out, get the best map, and you're never going to find Jesus. Our only hope, our only hope, our desperate prayer for all of you who don't yet believe is that Jesus will find you and that you'll be drawn by Him and that He will reveal the truth of Jesus to your innermost being. That's what we want. That's what we want. When you have friends that are are lost and family that are unsaved that's what you pray for god reveal yourself god draw them god make yourself known then jesus turning to his disciples he said privately blessed are the eyes that see what you see for i tell you that many prophets big shots and kings big shots desired to see what you see little children they didn't see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear. But the moment has come. The moment is now upon us. Happened in that time, in the first 33 or so years of the first century. The moment has arrived revealing the Father. And He's pleased to reveal the Father to all whom He calls. And these disciples, And now by extension, you, the disciples who have trusted Christ, the disciples have now had the joy of living to witness the absolute apex of human history. There's nothing on the calendar that's going to be better than this. That we live in the time where the grace of God has been poured out and you can have the Father revealed to you. Man, and lucky you. This is when you live. 
This is when you exist on this planet in a time where you can know Jesus. And this is the capstone of the message of grace. People that are too enslaved to sin to desire freedom. People who are under a death sentence because of that sin. And people that are yet incapable of doing anything about their sin are now, right now, being called out of their rotten, stinking, sin-stained grave clothes. And they're called to be resurrected to new life, brand new eternal life in Christ Jesus, where they will be clothed in righteousness and fully forgiven and fully accepted. That is grace. That's what grace is all about. You can listen to the first three quarters of this message. You go, oh, super sinful. God's going to judge me for it. Oh, thanks, Mark. There's nothing I can do about it. But I'm not asking you to do anything about it. I'm asking you from the depth of your being to call out to the one who can do something about it. The one who will rescue you from the deepest pit you find yourself in. He will rescue you and He will give you the righteousness you could never earn. And He'll give you something so much better than just keeping the rules. He'll give you His eternal, unfailing, everlasting love. And the Scripture shouts, this is the work of grace alone. Something you could never own is freely given. Something that you would never seek suddenly overtakes you. And something you will never deserve is granted freely by the goodness of Almighty God. That He, and for this purpose, that He might be praised eternally. Over and over in the book of Ephesians, Paul says, and all this is to the praise of His glorious grace. Sola Grace alone. There is nothing you can add to it that's going to help you be saved. There's nothing you can you can attach to it that's going to help you to know God or have the Father revealed to you. Sola gratia, grace alone, it is our only hope. Would you stand with me? I want to just pray over you. We're done. I just want to pray over you that the message of grace would... would um, follow you and enrich you and sustain you and strengthen you throughout this week. And I'm going to read a brief uh, benediction and um, we do want to remind you once again, we'd love to have you tonight. So please, if you have plans, cancel them and show up here. Okay? Five o'clock. Um, if you're bringing little kids, please, Ginger will be in the foyer immediately after the service. Please let her know so we just make sure we have enough stuff and are prepared for your kiddos. Okay? Let me pray. Father, thank you for grace. Lord, I want to repent to you. And I want to repent to you probably on behalf of many here who have trusted you. We're we're saved, God, but we have taken your grace for granted. We thought that you saved us and now we have the right to feel like we were a contributing factor in any of this, Lord, or that even now, God, we're, we're one of your, your gold medal, blue ribbon Christians, Lord, and Father, 
we've forgotten. I've forgotten so many times, Lord, that I, I was not just saved by grace, Lord. I lived by grace. Paul called it the grace by which I stand, Lord God. If you were to withdraw your grace for a single second, I would fall flat and beyond any ability to rise again. But Lord, help us to know this week, God, especially those of us who are believers, help us to know that you are sustaining us by your grace. Lord, it is a deposit of your grace that's going to allow us to live today loved. It's it's a deposit of your grace that's going to allow us to rise out of our beds tomorrow. It's a deposit of your grace that's going to allow us to endure suffering and and face challenges that that would crush us most of the time. And so, Lord, we thank you and we cry out for an abundance of grace in our life. The ability of God to do what we're incapable to do. The grace that is greater than all of our multitudes of sin. Our sins, they are many. But His mercy is more. And grace that assures us that, that, that our sinning, our continual sinning, that deserves so much judgment, has already been judged in your body on the cross. And help us to remember that, Lord. God, I just send your people out. God, to not only be delighted recipients of grace, but to be proclaimers of it, Lord God. God, open up divine appointments and windows of opportunity for them this week to proclaim this beautiful gospel of grace to those who desperately need to hear it. And Father, go before them. Help them to have faith as as you go before them, Lord, that you are going to do what the Scripture said that you would do, that you're going to reveal the Father to them and they'll be ready to hear the message. Lord, just equip us convict us, enable us to be able to proclaim the gospel of your grace. Lord, lastly, I pray for those here who do not know you. I pray for those who are deceived and think they know you because of some religious activity or moral choice that they've made, Lord, and they've never, ever recognized their own depravity, their own inability, and put their trust in you, Lord. Let today be the day, Lord God, where their hearts are stabbed, Lord God, and they they finally die to themselves and put their trust in you for life that is really life, Lord God. Let it be today. Holy Spirit, go get them. Bring in your harvest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would place your hands in the receiving position, I want to read you this passage that is just so beautiful from Ephesians 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we, you and I, should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the beloved. In Jesus' name, I release you to the blessing of God. Amen.